0: Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. My guest this week is Helen Burgess, founder of Little Cooks Co., a monthly recipe box kit for kids. Helen has a really interesting story. She used to work in government as a senior civil servant at the cabinet office and at Number 10, but had long been interested in food, health and nutrition. And in fact, she is a registered nutritionist. And so when she fell pregnant with her son, she decided it was time to leave government and follow her passion and create Little Cooks Co., and Little Cooks Co. is all about getting kids excited about healthy, nutritious food. You'll hear Helen talk about how concerned she is about the loss of basic cooking skills and that people, and especially kids, are just becoming increasingly disconnected from the food system. One thing I really liked about talking to Helen was that she's clearly very passionate about what she does, but she's also pragmatic. And One thing she said that really struck a chord with me is about the importance of making sure we give children a choice in how they eat. It's not about being dogmatic or purist and wanting everyone to eat nothing but organic home-cooked meals all day every day. It's about making sure kids have a choice in how they feed themselves when they grow up. Because if kids grow up without basic food knowledge, Without the ability to cook a meal for themselves, they have no choice but to rely on convenience foods later in life. So that's coming up in a moment, but first let me bring you up to speed on some of the big food and grocery retail stories this week. It's been a very busy week for news and innovation at Asda. First of all, the retailer appointed Stuart Rose, the former boss of M&S, as its new chairman. Rose led M&S between 2004 and 2011 and was most recently chair of Ocado. Asda also announced it's trialling a new in-store concept for draught beer as part of its efforts to reduce packaging and offer more refillable options shoppers can use reusable glass containers to take home 12 craft beers and ciders poured straight from the tap in store. The pilot scheme is being run in partnership with specialist craft drinks retailer Craft on Draft. It's currently available at Asda's store in Milton Keynes only, but could be extended if the trial proves successful. Asda also made headlines this week by announcing it would hide 30 items of Gucci clothing among its George and Asda lines. The Gucci items will be second-hand and will cost as little as £12. No, this is nothing to do with Read and Drink, and yes, it's absolutely a publicity stunt. It's also tied in with the release of the new House of Gucci film, But I think it's a really interesting sign of how much Asda is pushing on the sustainability front at the moment. They're trialling lots of stuff. they're being very innovative. And for context, Asda started selling second-hand clothes in 50 of its stores earlier this year as part of a partnership with pre-loved Vintage Kilo. The UK food and drink industry has launched a new roadmap to ensure more sustainable water use. It comes after COP26 highlighted water shortages as a key risk arising from climate change. Signatories to the new water roadmap include co op MS, Asda, Sainsbury's, Tesco, Nestle and Coca-Cola. There's more consolidation happening in the rapid grocery delivery sector. Getir this week announced plans to acquire Wheezy and it comes after GoPuff acquired Deja and Fancy earlier this year. Princess Group has launched a new platform to make it easier for it to work collaboratively with retailers on new product development. The new platform is called CoLabs and it involves a panel of 3,000 consumers who can test and provide feedback on potential new products. Princess says the new platform will make it easier for retailers to stay on top of trends and identify NPD that has what it takes to be commercially successful. This comes as there's a lot happening around NPD and product discovery at retailers more generally at the moment. Last week, Tesco became the latest UK retailer to sign up to RangeMe, which is a product sourcing platform that streamlines the product discovery process for buyers. The platform basically allows buyers to browse and search for new products and suppliers based on a wide range of criteria, And it's particularly focused on streamlining how smaller suppliers get their products in front of buyers. Asda also recently signed up to the platform. Sales of eco-friendly pet food in the UK have soared over the past five years, according to new figures from the Marine Stewardship Council. The number of pet food products containing MSC certified seafood is up by 57% over five years, albeit from a relatively small base. And more than 7 million packs of MSE-certified pet food were sold in the last 12 months. And finally, Co-op has confirmed it won't be running a traditional Christmas TV campaign this year. Instead, it will produce what it describes as the UK's first live advert to highlight community solutions to food waste. It will use a two-minute ad slot during ITV's Coronation Street to go live to a community organisation to show how they are running community fridges and fighting food waste and hunger. And 10-second versions of that live ad will then run throughout December. These are some of the big food and grocery retail stories this week. You can find links to all the stories in the show notes and on thepicklist.co.uk. And now, here's my conversation with Helen Burgess. Helen, welcome to The Picklist. Thank you for being my guest. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, you are founder and director of Little Cooks Co., which is a healthy cooking kit for kids. You are also a registered nutritionist. But before you got involved in food, you used to be in government, quite a senior level, in fact, used to work at the cabinet office and also at number 10. I have so many questions for you. I can't wait to dive into this interview. But let's just start with what you're doing right now, which is running Little Cooks Co., What exactly is the concept? How does it work?
1: So it's a monthly recipe box that we create for children aged between sort of 3 to ten, three to 11, um, all in the aim of trying to introduce them to real food, to understand the impact, the amazing power of food and how to cook with it and you know a, a lovely consequence of that are these amazing family opportunities to get together and bond in the kitchen as so many of us have got you know memories of childhood where we're helping our granny bake or the smells of coming in and you know smelling you know mum making something and getting involved and there's such powerful opportunities so as a busy mum myself and knowing you know you want something that you can do with your kids that's just easy and stress-free so we send all of the dry organic ingredients in the kit. Um, I create or approve all of the recipes from the sort of nutritional perspective to make sure they're as nutrient dense as possible Um, and it's just to try and help this kind of issue where cooking is becoming lost the connection between food and our bodies is becoming lost in you know sort of understandably in our very busy very pressure driven modern life but it's trying to be a bit of an antidote to that and have an impact a, a positive impact on on family life and children's health
0: and so when you send out your kits you said all the the dry ingredients are contained in the boxes do people then sometimes have to go out and buy some fresh ingredients to, to make the recipes as well? Or, or how does it work?
1: There's always a few um extras that people have to buy, but we email a week before to say your kit's on its way, and these are the these this is what you need to get. And we've actually excitingly just this month launched our savory range. So we up until now we've been baking. So the things that people have to add are, are like um, you know, milk, um, butter or you know, coconut oil or whatever. Um, but now we've launched our savoury range so there's there's like the beetroot falafel that we did this month they obviously have to um, buy the beetroot and a couple of other bits but we try and keep it to the absolute minimum but part of the savoury range the concept is sort of garden to plate so the key ingredient of each recipe we include organic vegetable seeds for them to grow and harvest their own food and you know that is such a magical thing for like an adult as well as a kid. Watching a seed grow into a little seedling, and then and then harvest that to put in, you know, to cook into a recipe. Um, that's very much part of trying to help children understand where food comes from as
0: well. Fantastic! And how long have you been running now?
1: I, I it's just over four years now. It's, it was May 2017, so we're coming up to five years um, quite soon. So, yeah, it's been an absolute roller coaster because I I just set it up from my kitchen table like you know real cottage industry just gave it a punt because I, I, I worked in government as you said prior to that I didn't have any business experience but I was very passionate about wanting to um, you know use the nutrition information and knowledge that I built up from my um, three-year course that I did into something that would make families happy and, and teach children um, and then so the first two years I was just completely on my own doing it from my front room and got you know steady organic growth which meant I was able to then um, successfully raise funding um, and then from there it's kind of scaled hugely through lockdown which was a complete whirlwind Um so suddenly I'm like oh gosh what just happened
0: <laughs>
1: and now you know it's a kind of a business that I'm running with you know staff and um, supply chain and you know it's sort of grown up a lot I suppose in the last couple of years which yeah. is
0: I can imagine. And are you purely D2C? Is it all done through your website? Or do you have any retail presence or plans to potentially take the concept into retail at some point?
1: We started
0: last year, we dipped our toe in
1: and did a range for boots, a couple of um, uh, cooking kits for for boots. Um, So we've done that again with them. And we do have we are primarily DTC and I think that will remain our strategy, but we are looking to expand into the retail space. We're on a cardo. um, uh, But yeah, that's part of our
0: 2022 strategy, I think, to get into a few more like minded retail outlets. Fantastic. And that sounds like it's definitely something we're going to keep an eye on and see what you (laughs) get up to in retail. Because, of course, there's so much there's a lot of growing interest, isn't there, from retailers actually in that whole recipe kit space so I imagine uh, you'll have quite a bit of interest but I'm so interested in your personal journey into this as well how did you go from working in government to wanting to get involved in food and then kids nutrition and food in particular what prompted that?
1: So in government I mean I adored my career in government I got to work on so many amazing policy areas and doing so many different roles um, I did end up working in cabinet office in number 10 when I fell pregnant with my um, son. And it was like just the most crazy, amazing, interesting, privileged, little bit disillusioning <laughs> experience, um, which you know, in some ways made me realise if I want to have an, an impact. So I, I had I'll talk about where my sort of passion for nutrition came from. government change is slow and you know that's understandable there's got to be the right you know analysis laws regulations it is understandably slow but it was frustrating for something that I felt very passionate about um and as well it was not um the sort of lifestyle where I thought I could raise my son and, and have adequate time with him because it was pretty brutal and stressful and I didn't want those in my life when I was like raising my son So that having getting pregnant and going on maternity leave was the sort of catalyst for, right, I'm just going to be brave and I'm just going to do something completely different. But my passion for nutrition came from my dad, who when I was like 16 years old or something, he gave me a book. And none of us had cancer at the time. It was called Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Living. And it was all about this chap's journey into how he had tried all the orthodox, you know, um, approach to tackling his very aggressive chemo. And then he turned to lifestyle and nutrition and he cured himself and he was cancer free for 15 years. And it just completely blew my mind. And he gave it to me, my brother and my sister at Christmas.
0: (laughs) Christmas, That's that's... right. Thanks, Dad. (laughs) (laughs) Great. (laughs) cheerful yeah
1: (laughs) exactly he's a very quirky man um but it changed my life you know it set me on that path I found it so empowering you know there's so much in life we don't have anything any control over but how we choose to nourish ourselves what information we choose to absorb into our minds what that's stuff that we have control over and I've just really unleashed this real fascination and passion so I then was like reading loads and loads of books and I, I missed the kind of Understanding of why, so I would learn. Oh well, vitamin A does this. I was like, but how and why? And uh, when I decided that I was going to quit government, and I knew I wanted to do something with nutrition. You know, I I had a role where I could observe all of government's work, and all I ever honed in on was, I think at the time they were doing the a hospital a food hospital food review, and I was just like, what's happening with that? I want to something with that because it's so disgusting how terrible food is in hospitals you know, anything to do with kids education. And that was always what I was honing in on. So I was like, I've got to do something in this space. And um, nutrition, you know, for, it, it, arming myself with a credible, um, you know, knowledge and understanding in the area then made me feel like, okay, I can start a business in this, um, because I, I'm going to arm myself with the right sort of qualification and knowledge.
0: So. Absolutely. I'm so interested in what you were saying, though, about the frustrations sometimes of working in government, because, as you said, you had a front row seat to some big policy initiatives affecting food as well. You've already talked about the the hospital food uh, initiative. I imagine sugar tax, Mm -hmm. responsibility deal, RIP, Mm -hmm. probably also something that that crossed, crossed your desk you had to be you were in part of the civil service so you had to be impartial looking at this mm. i wonder what you learned about i suppose the challenges that governments face in tackling things like hospital food childhood obesity what is the biggest reason progress in these areas often seems as you say so slow so sluggish it's fixed term parliaments i guess but mm. you, you've got to have democracy
1: so i mean I've got an issue with this at the minute um, with one of the articles I, I shared with you about, you know, it's very sh- short term. It's, I think when I joined government, I think they were three year fixed term parliaments, I think. And, and then they extended it to five years, which is obviously right, because you want the government in power to to have a longer term view. So they invest in things you know, the start of parliament that could see, you know, progress throughout, but you have to invest in things that are going to be 20 years off. And, you know, governments don't really want to do that, because they might not get the kudos for it. Um, so really, to invest in hospital food, you need huge investment in infrastructure to put kitchens back into hospitals to same with schools, you know, lots of schools of outsourced catering, and are just at the mercy of beige you know long life food that is not nourishing kids at all um but until they have the infrastructure in school and that that's very costly um so i think that's a, a real challenge it's also you know what's yeah it's it's all about winning votes essentially and um it's you know i in some ways i don't envy that you know i i think that there's um they can get a lot of flack um but in the end you've got to have the public interests you know put the public's interest really in the forefront and if we really want to tackle like childhood obesity they've got to make decisions now that are going to impact in 10 15 20 years time and um i don't know if they're doing that for, for example with the sugar tax as well when you were talking about needing to be impartial and i found that really stretched me to my limit mm. because They my personal view of the research I've read and you always find research that tells you something else. So, you know, you've got to read the research with an open mind and then go with what your gut tells you. And sugar is just basically being replaced with artificial sweeteners, as far as I can tell, more or less. Some aren't reformulating in that way, but lots are. My view of artificial sweeteners is that they're no better. You know, they they damage the gut and the microbiome in a way that is not beneficial to weight gain you know all of those things um but that's not necessarily something that you know the primary goal is let's just reduce sugar let's let's make sure that we look good on that barometer and it's like well yeah but it's being replaced with something pretty toxic well yeah but the sugar's down you know it to and and i I, i've got strong views about it so to be impartial is quite hard
0: (laughs) i I can i can imagine the People either in the food sector or campaigners who want to make a difference um, on, on feed and nutrition. What did you learn from working in government about how to best make yourself heard? What do people from industry, for example, typically not understand about how government works and how decisions are made?
1: I mean, I think that you have to be realistic. You have to look at where... You know, read the manifesto of the government of the day because, as much as people think they are just something that's pushed out before an election, I, I worked across three elections, and those manifestos are really interrogated with rigor about how well are we performing on our manifesto commitments. So you've got to have a good understanding of of where they're at and what their kind of ambition is in the area you're wanting to to tackle. Um, You know, a lot of people just don't pick up the phone. But if you searched on gov.uk and looked for the right policy person in Department for Health in DEFRA and picked up the phone, you'd probably have a pretty decent chat with them and understand and and talk to them about, well, you know, are there any consultations coming up that I could contribute to? Are there any roundtables or, you know, industry events coming up that I could get involved in? And just kind of make yourself known at that kind of level. And then, um, you know, you can try and access from the top as well. Having a um, influential spearhead is always helpful, you know, like Marcus Rashford is obviously like the most unbelievable example of that at the minute. Um, But if he, you know, helps a a smaller business or a smaller charity, he's going to get heard. Um, So yeah, there's a few different ways, but I think persistence and, you know, doggedness <laughs> is another kind of definitely good qualities to have when you're trying to tackle government. So <laughs> I
0: can could, I could imagine. But of course, I, I think many listeners actually, you know, will work for companies and organisations who are facing exactly that challenge, who mm. want to... Um, make sure that their voices are heard in some of these really important debates. So actually hearing your your take on this and and getting a little bit of advice from someone who's been on the inside, I think is actually very, uh, very helpful. Now, you've already touched on um, some of the articles that we're going to talk about. Before we dive into those, I just want to quiz you a little bit about your reading habits. What are you like as a reader? What publications do you read to keep up on industry trends And what types of stories typically capture your attention? So I um, have a sort of love-hate relationship with like
1: media, I suppose. You know, (laughs) because it well, there's so much noise, isn't there? There's so much that you could just be, you know, do nothing but read, um, and and sometimes just sort of be at the mercy of what's put in front of you. So I'm pretty. Careful about what I consume, so I generally have Google Alerts set up for my interests, and then I don't generally read the sort of mainstream that much. I'll you know rely on the fact that Google Alerts are amazing. I also um, set up a Google Alert, you know, not so long ago for Little Cooks Co, which I wish I'd done ages ago because then you sometimes pick up when you've been talked about and you're not expecting it through your PR agency or whatever. So that's quite a good little tip that I <laughs> done before. Um, I would say. Um I'm I'm more listen, so I I listen to podcasts a lot. I, you know, if I'm ever on a drive, I'm always listening to to podcasts. So I'll usually just put in a topic that interests me, very, you know, health and nutrition related. So I love Dr. Chatterjee, for example, who um, you know, is such an advocate of lifestyle medicine and how just popping pills is never going to help us get away from diabetes and obesity. You know, you've got to address your lifestyle and what you're eating and um so I would and I, and I get I get a nutrition magazine once a month that I like read from cover to cover um, but I think that's my my way in is this sort of Google alerts to keep me up to date with the current affairs and then it's usually fairly dense reading books about you know psychology or nutrition or um health and then loads of like audible books and podcasts.
0: Fantastic. Where do you get inspiration for your recipes from? Because you said you are very closely involved in developing the recipes um, and and signing them off. Um, Yeah, where where do you get ideas for recipes?
1: Instagram, actually. I do find Instagram can be quite, um, uh, you can take so much of your time up, but you're just so amazing how you can come across such brilliant, innovative ideas. And then usually the way we create recipes is to take a, something that children will be familiar with but then put our slant on it which is to take out the refined ingredients and try and find some nutrient dense ones so yeah um so yeah deliciously Ella at the very start of the journey was quite a big inspiration is when I first had my son I remember making her like sweet potato brownies and being like what (laughs) potato um so that kind of then it was the Hemsley sisters I think after that and it sort of followed that path um but now I've got a sort of lots of freelance recipe developers and we you know put ideas down and we talk about it and we think about the themes of the boxes because we want to yeah like it would be lovely to do a jam roly-poly but when can we do that when it's seasonal we can do it when you know there's strawberries where we can encourage children to grow or pick their own and making like lovely chisey jam with it and so we we have like quite Um, good content sessions where we come up with the ideas and then at this stage actually it's it's more the recipe developers who will come up with the the recipes and then we test them as a team and with our children and then we always send the recipes out to four families who are either subscribers or not but have said oh we'd love to to help your development to get them to test it for us as well so we're you know our children are very used to their palates are very used to um our food now so
0: (laughs) Fantastic. Now let's talk about your first article and it's from The Guardian and the headline is NHS to set up 15 special clinics in England for severely obese children. And just to summarise the story quickly for listeners, this is news that more than a thousand children a year are to receive treatment at these 15 clinics as part of a pilot scheme to trial early intervention measures to help them lose weight The children will be aged two to 18 broadly, and the treatment will include diet plans, mental health support and coaching, and also support for the family. And the overarching goal here is to prevent more children from developing serious long-term health problems such as type two diabetes, heart attacks, and cancer. And again, for context, one in five children in the UK is affected by obesity at the moment. Helen, what was your reaction when you read this article and why did you pick it? So
1: um, I'm not anti-government as I said you know they are realising there's a very big problem and they need to do something about it so they are taking action but I just think it's the wrong action especially when I saw that two-year-olds were going to be included you know they will naturally then be in an environment where they're being. you know, they're they're hearing the words diet and being overweight. And, you know, I just don't think that is any good for a child to be in that sort of environment. Um, But equally, it's, it's like a sticking plaster on what is a much bigger fundamental problem, which is why are children becoming obese at such a young age as well? And that's that the food system needs you know fundamental change the government needs to be bolder and invest in different areas to tax ultra processed fake food that is designed to be addictive that's so cheap so available that it's impossible for families especially on low income to choose much else because it's the most affordable thing out there and the kids love it because it's it's designed to be that way so until they address that And make it a much more um, a food system that actually encourages people to be healthy. How many clinics are they going to need? It's going to be never-ending. So it's yeah, I think it's just a bit of a. You know, I I, I hope that the children that go through it will benefit. Um, I hope it's not you know wasted money. Uh, But they, if they were to address the prevention side of it, that would be so much more powerful.
0: As you said earlier, it's obviously the the pace of change uh, Mm -hmm. of uh, government is so, so slow. And I suppose there are children who have very urgent needs now and who perhaps could be helped by by some of these clinics and don't have time to wait until someone has come up with a more fundamental rethink of the food system. I mean, Mm -hmm. as you said, though, like you, I was, you know, I swallowed quite hard when I read the you know the age group here starts at two as you Mm -hmm. said that's um obviously quite quite scary that that children that young a would require that level of intervention Mm -hmm. um but also as you say the you know what does that do to a child to be um in that kind of environment i mean Mm -hmm. the fact that there is quite a lot of emphasis on mental health support and supporting the family i'm hoping that that is a positive sign that there is a sort of slightly more holistic and interdisciplinary approach here rather than just making it about you know you are too heavy you need to lose weight we're putting you on a diet absolutely I think you know it there were some things about it where you think that
1: this could create then the long-term change for that family so if they are upskilled and they you know leave that Clinic with uh you know 10 recipes that they can, you know, know what to buy, it's affordable, and they can cook them and they have a new understanding of food and not just the sort of calories in, calories out, which is so outdated. You know, the benefits of eating real food and avoiding the processed food, that would be great. And um, you know, I I totally take your point. There is a problem now and it needs to be sorted. Um, yeah, I think this uh, let's see what happens and hopefully they will you know it's a pilot and hopefully it will show good results and they can they can roll it out whilst there's still you know such a huge demand for it but I think as well there's such a lack of um I said it at the start the this the cooking skills and this connection with what we're eating and our bodies and how we feel is so linked and it's just lost and there's not barely any of it in, you know the majority of schools it's not being taught and children would have a much better chance of understanding their health and you know empowering them with knowledge if they if they got that information at school as well so it's got to be multi um you know addressed in in lots of different ways but it was the when I saw that article and I thought oh you know <laughs> Where's where's the action that's being done to prevent as rather than just this kind of, oh, there's a big problem, the the gains they would make from the reduced um, impact on NHS services by just helping people be healthier and, you know, empowering them with the information they need to to nourish themselves and be healthy is going to have so much of a saving, but, you know, probably not in their parliament and... (laughs) might not be them to take the you know the the benefit for it But
0: yeah and and I suppose as you said right at the start that is one of the big challenges isn't it and it's not just on health you know sustainability just any of those big systemic changes that really require a long-term strategy are fundamentally incompatible with um the system we we have at the moment I want to move you on to your second article because you've actually already touched on one of the points that um, it covers, which is about ultra processed food. So I think it will link in quite nicely with what we've just been talking about. So the second article you picked is from Technology Networks and the headline is Urgent Need to Reduce Children's Ultra Processed Food Consumption. This is from a little while ago but it highlights an important study led by imperial college london that sought to quantify what percentage of children's diets currently comes from ultra processed foods and then also look at at the extent to which consumption of these foods is then linked to um, overweight and obesity in later life and it found that ultra processed foods accounts for about 60 percent of children's calories on average and that the more ultra-processed foods children consume, the greater their risk of becoming overweight or obese later. Mm -hmm. And there are a whole host of measures the researchers then call for in light of these findings. One of them is uh, new national, national dietary guidelines that emphasize the importance of fresh or minimally processed foods. And there are other countries, including Brazil, Uruguay, France, Belgium, Israel, that have already done this the extent of it, it's just, it's so
1: shocking. I think that's part of um, what made me, you know, share that that article. It's its just, I think it also says that one in five children get 78% of their calories from ultra-processed food. Yeah. What chance have they got you know, to, to live, to, to really thrive, to live optimally with that lack of nourishment?
0: But parents, I suppose, and and consumers in general are bombarded with messages about what they should and shouldn't eat for health, Mm. for the planet, for whatever. And I sometimes worry with the debate around processing and ultra-processed foods is that are we adding yet another thing to the list of things that consumers are going to worry about? And is this yet another thing that people are going to feel bad about? Um, Because even though... Of course, unprocessed foods are fantastic and should be a much more, a much bigger focus of our diets. Is it helpful to tell people about, um, you know, to make them really worried about processing and, and, and ultra processing? How do you think we can strike that balance and make people feel empowered to make good choices and not freak them out because sometimes they need to buy a ready meal or need to rely on on more convenient options? Totally. And yeah, no, I it's such, I mean, as a parent myself, it's and
1: all the labelling, you know, I'm a registered nutritionist, and I will look sometimes be like, what? You know, it's just so, and the health messaging that's put on some things, and you look and think, hang on, you know, it's not actually, you know, yes, it might have, you know, high fibre, but it's also got, you know, XYZ. So I totally get you. And, and certainly with Little Cooks Co, it's, we're so much about the positive it's it's not purist it's you know we all our our children all have cake and chocolate and ice cream and um it's about uh, redressing the balance I suppose and helping empower children and families to think actually I can knock something up quite easily with just a few ingredients and um yeah I it's it's really difficult I I when those things come out I like it because it's a bit of a spotlight up to government to say, look at this, this is the state of things. Um, And if it, it, you know, it is hard, but if it helps people have a better understanding of what ultra processed food is, because you wouldn't naturally think that, you know, bread is ultra processed. But a lot of it is, you know, if it's just this sort of very quick baked white bread, but instead of that, you could have, you know, a whole wheat loaf and that will have better. So it's helping educate to say, like, there's, I'm sure there's lots in the ultra-processed food bucket that was, um, you know, shared with that article that people would be surprised by. And that's that's good that it would help inform and help people make decisions with that knowledge. But yeah, I totally get you. And I think, you know, we have to have, as parents that sort of 80-20 or whatever it is of you can't you can't beat yourself up your kids are going to sometimes need to just have a takeaway or a ready meal when life's hard and difficult and busy and after school clubs and this and that and you might not the shopping might not have come so
0: it's not about making people feel guilty it's it is as you say about trying to empower them and and as you i think your point about redressing the balance so perhaps say well maybe not 60% of the calories need to come from this but a a relative smaller percentage i mean there are some people who are calling for um i guess the nova score um, essentially which is 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 that system that you described a little bit earlier about um, how processed classifying how processed a particular food is Um, and there have been some calls for nova scores to be added to (laughs) food packs and i think there are some apps already um, where you can essentially get the nova score along with nutritional information or information about eco um, yeah. performance as well do you think adding a, a Nova score would be helpful or are we overloading people with more labelling and, and more information? I think if it's added it will feel overwhelming I think if it
1: potentially replaced some of the um, labelling at the moment like for example I I'm much more my personal view and lots of people won't agree with this but is Um, the macronutrient profiling is quite outdated in in our sort of thinking and something being high fat does not necessarily mean it's not nutritious it it could be that that fat comes from seeds and nuts and provides an unbelievable amount of micronutrients that is so healthful but people would go oh no it's red for fat and i'm not I know I'm not going to do that then because fat's been demonized for so long. And it's only, you know, I think that's starting to change. And people are are realizing that, you know, it was the scapegoat for sugar, but um, adding lots more. And then, you know, the eco, I, I saw that that was being something that's considered. And I thought, oh, how wonderful. But you think, God, someone's going to pick something up in the supermarket and think, what on earth? Like, how do I judge this product, because there's too many things being thrown at them. The the process, I would prefer to know if how processed something is. My, you know, our whole ethos at Little Cooks Co. is, is it real? And, you know, after three years of training in nutrition, and it was so complex and, and challenging, much more so than I thought it was going to be. But all of it boiled down to if you eat real food and a good variety of it with lots of colours, you'll be all right, pretty much, unless you have very specific health issues that need, you know, different profiling. Um, So that's what we apply in Little Cooks Co. It's how real is the food, you know? And if if it's not been too processed, then you're good, really, you know? and, And just to simplify it that way,
0: Now I want to take you on to the third article, and I think it will actually allow us to keep on that conversation about ultra-processed foods, particularly in the context of of kids' diets. So this is one I picked. It's from Anthropocene magazine, and the headline is Children Eat Meat Unknowingly, Perhaps in Violation of a Bias Against Animals as a Food Source. Quite a lot to unpack there. But this is basically um, a couple of US studies that explored children's knowledge of and attitudes towards different foods. Um, What they found is basically that children are often quite confused about which foods are animal-based and which foods are plant-based. That was a particular focus of this piece of research. So, for example, quite a few of them thought hot dogs, bacon, chicken nuggets are plant-based and not Mm -hmm. Mm animal-based. And then in the second study, they asked children to classify all sorts of um, edible and inedible things um, as either okay to eat or not okay to eat. And the stuff they asked them to classify uh, included grass and dirt, but also pigs and cows and chickens. And they found quite a large majority of children, 70% roughly, said, well, cows and pigs aren't okay to eat. And 65% said chickens aren't okay to eat. And what I thought was quite interesting here aside from the specifics of you know plant based versus animal based the commentary mm. from the researchers on the one hand is tying it to sustainable diets they see an opportunity there to say well maybe younger generations are actually quite open to reducing their consumption of animal products based on this but they're also pointing out on a they're also pointing out on a more basic level that it shows that disconnect that you've talked about between you know parents not talking to their kids about where food comes from not connecting the dots between the chicken and the chicken nugget um, and also potentially suggesting that parents might hide the animal origin of certain foods in case it upsets kids so I was so fascinated by this and I'd love to hear your your take on this what did you make of this? It, I found it so interesting actually and I you know particularly the way they
1: were trying to then potentially draw the conclusion of you know children have a natural empathy for animals and we should use that to try and reduce consumption of meat um you just think well you know there's lots of fluffy pigs and cows in, in nursery books you know they're taught about them in that very fluffy empathetic lovely way and uh, you know um so it's natural that that would grow I suppose in in childhood but the um the thing that really just shone out to me is that yeah at the end of the article the the commentary says it anyway it just shows the absolute lack of understanding of food and where it comes from and you know if if children had been brought into the kitchen and helped to prepare the um you know if they were going to make chicken nuggets from home or if they were going to make a lasagna or whatever and then they would see, oh, that's that's mints, that's beef. They could have a conversation about it. It sparks all that, um, you know, amazing chat that happens in the kitchen. And it's clearly not happening or not happening enough because that disconnect is so stark, you know, to to read those results. And the other thing I thought, I mean, them saying that burgers, I mean, unless they're very progressive and they've had like lots of plant based burgers that have gone to the market these days things don't look like they are meat you know hot dogs it's so processed and you know it doesn't it doesn't look like the meat you know when you cook a steak or you get a chicken breast and it just doesn't have that same quality so it's sort of hidden anyway in the in the manufacturing of the food Uh, but yeah it was it was uh, shocking and you know that I suppose it shows the influence that those early years have and being in a household an environment a school a nursery where food is discussed and you know in an open way and talked about and kids get involved in the cooking would just so help again redress the sort of balance of of where we're at at the minute
0: yeah, and that, that for me, that was definitely the main piece that that stood out there. I think that disconnect, mm-hmm. um, like you, I wasn't quite as convinced by the, this sort of push towards plant-based foods because it, it just felt like there was quite a lot to unpack there. And um, mm-hmm. I'm also, I was quite interested in your view actually on plant-based foods, Um, In light of the conversation we've just had about ultra-processed foods, because again, talking about consumers and parents being bombarded with lots of messages and quite contradictory messages, there obviously are a growing number of people who are thinking of switching to more plant-based options, often for very good reasons in terms of health and the environment, but many of those plant-based analogues are heavily processed, they are ultra-processed. What's the right balance to strike there? I think so two things so it it's hard work
1: to be a very healthy plant-based um on a very healthy plant-based diet because you have to cook so much and as you say the options at the minute there are some really good ones I'm not I don't want to diss the market for you know there's some amazing companies um but the majority of it is is processed, and you know, you're not going to get the full profile of micro macronutrients um, unless you, you cook it from scratch. So that's intensive. Um, but the other thing I'd say is we're so individual, and there is no one diet that would that would suit us all. So some people thrive on plant-based, and some people do not do well. And in childhood you know i think it's um my preference is is to to provide them with the whole full range of nutrients from the most healthful sources possible and then they will develop their natural palates and their natural um preferences and go through really annoying fussy eating periods <laughs> which is um to do which is um, you just got to kind of in the majority of cases just wait it out um but to 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 restrict you know certain food groups or um you know portions of of a you know diet at an early age i just think is 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 not ideal um that's not to say that children can't be raised vegan and and not thrive and and have amazing health but it has to be done with a lot of care um and thought about what nutrients might need a little bit of topping up Um, You know, what might be lacking, because plants give us the most unbelievable, amazing array of phytonutrients and, you know, antioxidants and um, but there's lots that we need as well as plants, I would say, um, for, for childhood development.
0: What kind of feedback do, do you get from your customers, from parents who perhaps started cooking or baking more with their children as a result of uh, using your kits? What, what, what do they tell you in terms of the difference it makes?
1: Um, we actually did, recently did some case studies um, with, with some customers to, sort of, to, to talk about that, to say, how has Little Cooks Co impacted your life and your children's lives? And it was just I wish we'd do it every day because <laughs> a lovely thing to hear. You know, it really is the best, in you know, feedback to hear that children have grown in confidence and can now knock up, you know, a meal for their family or um, that they're eating, you know, more variety. They're more intrigued by food. They're, you know, they're always pulling up the stool to help it. And and you know they will remember tidbits of like the nutrition. We, it's always very fun and playful because we're very much about this. You know, food being a positive thing that children enjoy and um, you know understand and. But to to know that we've helped seed that early knowledge that food is amazing and you know and delicious and that you can use it and cook with it and feed yourself you know if children can't cook then they have no choice when they're older but to rely on the convenience food whether that's takeaways or you know ready meals or whatever it is so to know that we're helping to empower children to to avoid that when they're older they, they might not choose to but hopefully they will is is amazing so yeah when we get feedback like that it is just wonderful
0: Fantastic and as you said I think it's about enabling that choice Mm -hmm. they may still and they will definitely at some point still choose the ready meal or the takeaway but it's it's about making sure they do have that choice Mm -hmm. Helen we're out of time but um, if people want to find out more about you connect with you find out more about Little Cook's Care what's the best way to do that so our website
1: is, um, we have a, a contact form on there, which is www.littlecooksco.co.uk. And our um, handle on like Facebook and Instagram, Twitter is at littlecooksco. Um, so yeah, and, and I'm on LinkedIn, Helen Burgess, um, founder of Little Cooks Co. So yeah, I'd love to hear from people to, you know, hear what they think about this conversation or um,
0: if they want to hear more about Little Cooks Co. Super. Helen, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.